Hello, I'm Faisal Pervez, a South Asia analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. This protective operations cadre type work this clandestine, low-profile protection. It's something that allows our officers a level of comfort and the ability to go into places they probably wouldn't have gone otherwise. These are areas where we need to collect intelligence. Hi, I'm Fred Burton. Welcome to the Stratfor Podcast. I'm here with Thomas Pecora, who has written Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. Tom, thanks for being with Stratfor Talks today. It's great to be here, Fred. I appreciate the opportunity. And we really appreciate you uh, coming on our podcast. Uh, when you look at the book that you put together, talking about your 24-year career with the CIA, what exactly does the Protective Operations Division do at the agency? We have a long history uh, at the agency in, in terms of security. Security is uh, an element that was bolted into the organization from 1947. And within that element, they have had a uh, protective operations organization since way back. So we've been protecting the director and a variety of, uh, of other personnel. But at a certain point, we had to move into uh, a new area, protecting our case officers while they're operating in dangerous places. And um, that was the, the origin of the actual protective operations cadre, a, a new unit uh, that started basically in 1990. So much like the Secret Service or the State Department, uh, the CIA has similar operations protecting the DCI and, and others, but now have moved into actually protecting CIA case officers that's out meeting informants, correct? That is correct. As a result of a threat uh, against a senior official in an Asian country, we decided that we needed to look at how we were going to be able to protect our actual operations uh, personnel in, in these dangerous areas. So we had to uh, kind of go back to the drawing board and, and look at uh, a low-profile uh, method of protecting them in areas so they could still operate clandestinely because that's what what we do, but also provide a level of protection that um, was appropriate for some of the more dangerous parts of the world, uh, war zones, and working against very serious threats like cartels and um, terrorist groups. Tom, I know even last week uh, when I was doing a book talk about uh, my book on the kidnapping and murder of Bill Buckley, the CIA station chief in Lebanon, I always get questions uh, surrounding, well, how come Bill did not have protection? When you look at the history of what the CIA did with Protective Operations Division, correct me if I'm wrong, but it took events like Bill's kidnapping and murder in order to change. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, well, the way we operated, and I'm going to be not 100% accurate, but I'll, I'll give you a, the, the overall picture. Um for a long time, the agency was working against the, the Russians. It was the Cold War. And it was a little bit more of a gentleman's game. Uh, it was a cocktail circuit of, of spy craft. And we would catch one of theirs. They would catch one of ours. Maybe somebody would get a fat lip. 
but in general, there wasn't um, a serious threat, you know, in terms of killing our, our personnel. But as we started to move into areas where we were not no longer working against the Russians, where we were starting to work against, like in Beirut, there was uh, terrorist groups, and then later on um, in South America and some other locations, um, narco traffickers and uh, uh, narco terrorism, uh, the the threat became much more significant. And the real origin behind the protective operations cadre was was the death of uh, Colonel Nick Rowe in, in Manila, the Philippines. Oh, yeah. I'm very familiar with that case. Uh, our office uh, sent out a couple agents to work on that murder. Yes, it was very significant because after he was murdered, basically what came out was that there was a, a, a target list that had been uh, discovered in, um, in a safe house that had been raided. And on that list was Nick Rowe and additionally was the uh, CIA's chief in Manila. Normally, under those circumstances, we would pull the, the individual out to protect them. But the circumstances at that point were critical that he remain in country and continue to do what he was doing. So we decided we had to do something different. So we put together a team of uh, security personnel with a variety of background, whoever basically had some weapons background, some, some type of tactical background, put them together in teams and sent them out there. As a result of that, they kind of reviewed, you know, after action and realized, no, we really need to have a, a specialized training course and to really put some effort towards this particular type of protection because it was new and there there was a good chance we were going to have to do it again. So in 1991, they put together the first protective operations, actually they called it the Special Protective Operations Course, uh, SPOC. And uh, 1991 had the first course, and I was a member of that first element. And from that moment on, the um, the POC had been out, gone into operation, and uh, was only really exposed to the public during the Benghazi incident, where they had the movie uh, Thirteen Hours in the Book. Yeah, that's another one that I'm somewhat familiar with, Benghazi. And so before you have um, Bill Buckley kidnapped and murdered in Beirut, we also had Richard Welch. Uh, assassinated in um, Athens by uh, November 17, and we had Freddie Woodruff uh, murdered um, mm-hmm. as well. We had uh, uh, the author on that, that did a good book on on uh, Freddie's murder. So the threat, I guess, most people don't realize uh, or don't understand uh, the the challenges involving conducting clandestine operations overseas and the risk to our personnel today, which is what you were saddled with to try to mitigate, correct? Correct. And we have people working 365 days a year in in some of the most dangerous places in the world, places that even the military doesn't go. Right. And so the majority of the time, our tradecraft, our our security tradecraft, the the tactics and training that we provide our, our officers to go in these environments has worked extremely well. But when we go into areas like war zones, Iraq, Afghanistan, or um, places in Northern Africa, Algeria, Somalia, that threat level raises it up, up way beyond what we can expect our officers to be able to handle. So at that point, that's when the protective operations cadre comes in. And the, the word cadre uh, had a, has a special meaning in that it wasn't a full-time position. It was these teams were put together depending on the need. So we would go months without having an operation, and then they would need somebody potentially maybe in Bosnia, for, for example. And so they would put together a team and, and deploy. 
And were most of the uh, officers selected for this assignment, do, do they come off the DCI staff or are they former Green Berets or Navy SEALs, Marine Recon types? What What's your traditional pathway to become an officer in the Protective Operations Division? Actually, the POC, the selection process was, was entirely internal up until um, 9-11. This is something that the, the guys in the 13-hour story, they didn't know the history. I'm basically, uh, or was, the, the unofficial historian for the unit because I've been <laughs> in and out of it for so long, and I'm, I'm a big pack rat. All of our officers were internal, so all staff. And the varied background, some, some had been previous military, some had been police officers, some had no training whatsoever in that area, for, for example, myself. But we were put through training, and the training courses were developed uh, using the expertise from Secret Service. That's where we got our baseline theory for protection. Then some of the operational tactical stuff came from the DEA because of their uh, their undercover operations. Right. And then we used some of our ground branch, our special activities division, tactical support and, and training to build up our ability to deal with a higher level of firepower. You know, the, our enemies are no longer carrying pistols. They're, they're carrying battle rifles and uh, and uh, other heavy weapons. So we, we put together a training course that um, brought us up to speed. And some of our personnel would either come from the director's protective staff or would later on filter into the protection staff. When people ask me what we do here at Stratfor, I always try to say that we make sense of the world. Uh, look, I've been here now going on almost 20 years, and... I've had lots of opportunities to go elsewhere. I've uh, been lucky enough to have cobbled together a few books, but I can say this, that when I sit around the analyst table every morning and watch uh, some of our analysis being put together, I think people uh, would be surprised. And I think that for those of you who really want to see why uh, the world works the way it does, without the bias, without the spin, without the inside the beltway kind of uh, takeaways, uh, I would encourage you to take a look at what we do. Let me make you a special offer. Go to stratfor.com slash Fred Burton and take a look at what we do every day. I don't think you'll be disappointed. When you look at the the kind of weapons, Tom, uh, that you would qualify with? Are, are your traditional weapons like we would have, whether it be a SIG Sauer 226 or a Glock, or what, what typically would be the kind of weapons that you guys would train with? Oh, that uh, originally the Office of Security carried uh, 357 revolvers. Uh, yeah, that's and, what we and, carried back in the, yes, day, the model back in 19. The day. But yeah. in, in, when I went through the, the training course in 1991, we realized that was not going to work. So we moved up to the SIG 226. Yeah, and then later on we changed up to the Glock. Um, yeah. Now that was on the security side. On the operational side, they were they stuck with the uh, Brownie high power until until way later, and then we all, we went entirely to the Glock. But um, yeah, we we ended up with the uh, Sig two two sixes, M sixteens, or uh, later on M fours, and we would train on shotguns and a few other specialty weapons. Then we evolved. As things got more dangerous, when we started working the war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan, we started adding uh, squad automatic weapons, saws, grenade launchers, and, and a few other more more robust uh, weapons systems. 
like your driver training, is that something that you guys would contract out to get done, or would that also be done at the farm, or where did you guys go for that, or up at Beltsville with the Secret Service Academy? All of the above. I actually went through Secret Service Farms Instructor Training class yeah. uh, as part of joining an element where I was training presidential protection staff, foreign details. But uh, we we utilized um, driver tactics from Secret Service. We have our own driver, driving academy, you could call it. We also used uh, two other driving schools, uh, one in West Virginia and one in Southern Virginia. And driving skills are an incredible part of the protective world, especially in, in hostile areas where um, you're not going to be able to outnumber your attackers. So uh, retreat is the, and avoidance are, are the primaries. And uh, when you think through that from an operational perspective, I, I know it was always one of the funnest things to, to go through from a training perspective. You know, you crash and bang courses and so forth. Uh, I would imagine it would be similar at the agency, correct? Absolutely. We, of course, they throw in the bootlegs and the J-turns and all that. Yeah. But we always caveated that with, with the reality that most of that is actually Hollywood. I think there hasn't actually been an official incident where somebody did a bootleg turn to get out. Because in, in most of the uh, the areas where we work, the developing countries, the traffic situation and the roadway conditions do not allow for those types of more exotic maneuvers. Yeah, difficult to pull one of those bootleg turns on the, you know, the streets of Cairo or Bangkok. Or, <laughs> True, uh, too yeah. much traffic. Uh, unless, of course, you're Jason Bourne. Yes, of course. Tom, when you look at the CIA in general, there there's so much that's uh, – uh, written and there's this perception out there, whether it be six days of the condor kind of activity and so forth. I, when you look back at the agency, how do you separate the the myth from reality? You know, I know probably for many many years you you couldn't tell other than your immediate family who you were actually working with. You know, how hard is that to deal with just from a a job perspective? Oh, it's difficult. 23 out of 24 years, I was uh, undercover. So I was not able to tell people where I worked. And Hollywood, if if they get it right, it's by accident most of the time, with, right. with the exception of maybe Zero Dark Thirty, because there was a lot of collaboration. You know, Homeland is not even close. Uh, 24, I don't think so. They're all fun to watch, but not real. Right. Um, and there's also the agency has evolved just like a lot of, of government agencies. We've had to evolve because our our focus has changed. Uh, back in the day, it was the Cold War. So we have, we're very much influenced by many generations of case officers, our, our operations officers, who, who grew up in that environment. And they became our senior managers, which is great because they have excellent experience, but the world's changed and it's much more dangerous. And it doesn't operate in the cocktail circuit. So we had to, to kind of push to adjust to this new world where we're in war zones, where we're in terrorist uh, locations, where we have to operate outside of embassies and our traditional layers. We're embedded with military units. We're operating in collaboration with government uh, elements that we never did before. And we've successfully adapted. And a perfect example of this is the takedown of Baghdadi. Yeah, uh, that, amazing. That is a collaborative effort between so many different intel, military, and uh, foreign foreign intelligence uh, liaison services. Tom, it's difficult uh, when you're putting together books to really have time to read, but uh, what are some of your favorite authors? Oh, I 
I, I like the very really deep tactical stuff. So I like Barry Eisler, who's a former uh, case officer from the agency. He writes about um, an assassin, but it's, it's the tradecraft that I enjoy. And he is spot on because he um, utilizes a lot of different uh, really knowledgeable people. So I enjoy that. Uh, Mark Greeny's books, um, The Gray Man. Uh, those are those are excellent books for for that type of storyline. Of course, you know, they're not uh, always 100 percent accurate, but they're very enjoyable. So I like something that's closer to the tactical reality that I understand. Yeah, we have we've had Mark on uh, our podcast and he's a wonderful uh, writer and uh, certainly has had a very successful series with the Gray Man and just an all around good guy. When you look at the CIA going forward, uh, you you were inside the organization uh, with uh, the war on terror, as you write about in Guardian. Where do you see the CIA Office of Protective Operations being in the next ten years? Well, I think we're going to have to evolve again. I don't think it's going to go away. I, I don't think the world's going to get friendlier. In fact, uh, the Middle East has sunk back to kind of the levels it was when I first came on, which is uh, very saddening for me. Because I, I basically grew up, you know, in terms of my career during the war on terror. My second job in the agency, I was working in the security duty office when a terrorist uh, from Pakistan attacked our front gate and killed two of our officers and wounded three. Yeah, and that was that the was, uh, Mir Amal Khanzi murder. Correct. And that was before uh, the first Trade Center attack. Right. So that was a baptism in fire uh, for me because I, I was calling the ambulances, the police department, worked that case. And then I went into uh, Mogadishu and in 1993. And from that moment on, uh, I had this kind of a weird relationship with this guy named Bin Laden. And like Bin Laden's guys came into uh, into Mogadishu and were participating in the um, in the Black Hawk Down fight. And then later on, when I was working in Khartoum, he was there running around with all the other terrorist groups. Yeah. And then um, I worked against his his main minions in Asia just prior to 9-11 and then after 9-11. So there was this, uh, you know, interweaving of my life and my career with these terrorists. And what I see moving forward, we're going to have to adapt in some ways even further because the, this protective operations cadre type work. This clandestine, low-profile protection, it's something that allows our officers uh, a level of comfort and the ability to go into places they probably wouldn't have gone otherwise. These are areas where we need to collect intelligence. And some of these areas are not going to be war zones anymore. They're going to be, they're going to be in cities in Europe, South America, Asia. And um, we're going to have to change up from the heavy weaponry uh, of working in Iraq and Afghanistan to more of the super clandestine surveillance, counter-surveillance activities that actually I was involved in when I was doing counterterrorism against some of these uh, terrorist groups. And I'm sure that uh, the case officers that you're helping uh, really appreciate the fact that your team was watching their back. Yeah, there were some growing pains when we had to get on the same page because they're used to, they're very in, independent, they're used to operating their own way, and we had to learn their methodology, and then we had to expose them to ours. But now it's hand in glove in some of these locations. And so we've expanded after 9-11. There was just not enough staff people to do all the work. So we started uh, hiring contractors and we've worked with a variety of companies. And I'd like to tell you that the uh, contractors uh, were an extremely important part of the team and allowed us to do the protection work that we did in these these war zones. And I want to give you an idea of, uh, of how successful since 
the beginning in 1990, this protective unit has done work all over the world, was clandestine up until the Benghazi incident. And we've only lost one of our officers. We've never lost a protectee. And this is uh, working in areas that the, in Northern uh, Africa that nobody even knew about. And the tactics we used, you know, the idea of uh, if, you, if you can't see us, you can't shoot us. If we don't come up on your radar, you, you're not going to put the beat on us. Right. The only areas where we've actually had casualties were when we were doing a secondary mission. And that secondary mission is when we get tasked to do a more static security, like protect a base or basically rescue some uh, State Department people from, from a, a consulate. In that case, we've, we have taken casualties. Well, I know it's an extraordinarily serious business, Tom. Uh, what's one of your funniest stories? Oh, Wow. Um, I was tasked as the, I, in, in 2004, I was assigned as the second um, full-time security officer in Iraq. So I was the chief of security for all of our operations in Iraq. And one of the things I inherited, besides having the protection teams running around all over uh, Iraq and doing security surveys of all of our bases, and, and we were spread out all over Iraq, I had the uh, dubious honor of having to be the security slash bouncer for our bar in the green zone <laughs> and the Babylon bar was notorious or should I say famous or infamous? You can use whatever term you like, <laughs> but it was one of the few places uh, in the green zone where people could go for libations and social activity. And it was a, it was a great tool for us. We're always wet wherever we go. It's, it's one of our traditions. And, but you know, this is an environment where people are carrying guns and we have incoming rockets and, so I had to devise uh, policies and procedures to keep people safe while they still had a good time. <laughs> that sounds like the Star Wars bar. That was the one nearby. <laughs> there was another <laughs> bar nearby that I was trying to keep our people out of. And it was run by a South African company that their job, their company's job was to uh, remove mines, landmines. It's a demining company. And that place I heard they swept up the eyeballs in the morning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. What a job. Well... That's a great story, uh, Tom, and uh, we really appreciate you being on uh, Stratfor Talks today. And for those of you listening to this, I encourage you to uh, read Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror by Thomas Pecora. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Really appreciate being a guest on Stratfor. Love what you guys are doing, and I'll, be, I'll keep listening. If you're interested in learning more about Stratfor Worldview, our premier publication for anyone interested in geopolitics and world events, be sure to visit worldview.stratfor.com. Subscribe. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>